I want to give an update on the building. So we've been asking you guys, all of y'all, to pray with us for favor in the process. And it was kind of weird because two weeks ago we were like, this is going really super good. And then last week we got kind of so I hit the pause button on us. The seller did. And we're like, whoa, what's happening? So we weren't sure what that meant. And we literally had to spend like a week. I think I told you last week I was pretty inside out about it. I think God used it in really good ways for me to understand what's happening inside me. And that's not the point. But I mean, that's just what I'm sharing with you about my life. I want the things in your life that kind of turn you inside out and that cause you to examine like what's going on inside. But that's what happened anyway. It was a good thing. And so then... After last week, we're on pause. This week, we're off pause. We're ready to rock. We're ready to go. And so the seller's ready to sell. We're ready to buy. Um, we think we have agreed upon price. And so I'm going to encourage you to keep praying for favor in that. Um, a couple of things we're going to have to look at quickly here is we are planning on talking to a, a local bank about financing, but we'll still need to get the down payment raised. And if we don't get the down payment, the team has a conviction that we won't buy the building. Uh, now, there are options but we aren't necessarily interested in those options because we think it's unbiblical. And so we're going to um, attempt to raise the down payment. Um, we're going to sign a contract, God willing, uh, with the details that we need in it. And then maybe, and this is what we all can be praying about, because this would be crazy for Family Bible Church. Like, this would be crazy. But maybe even get early access to the property so that we can start taking the money. We, every week we rent this space. We rent the, the blast or the nursery out. Um, we rent the office out. And we're going to take some of that money and move it toward paying the down payment to them. And the, the seller seems open to their idea. So pray for favor in that, that um, if... I don't know what that looks like because we've got to figure things out, but pray for favor in that, uh, that we might be able to do that and the whole deal come together for God's glory. So that's really where we're at with that. I want to kind of be really clear. Last week we couldn't hardly really say anything because it was out of our hands. when this all out of our hands anyway, right? We want it to be a God thing. And so uh, keep praying that. Here's something else I'd love to ask you to pray for with it. Pray that through the whole thing, whatever comes of it, Whatever it is for Family Bible, whatever it is for the seller, whatever it is for the community, whatever it is, that God would be glorified through it, right? Like through all the hope, through all the heartache, through all the struggle, through all the pain, that in the end, ultimately, God would be made known, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be held in high esteem, and that it would not be about us or about, um, you know, somehow, I have this idea that God is on the other side of the veil of glory, does that make sense? In other words, there's a tendency that we go, hey, we're on side with God, and we are, but there's a reality that God is so amazing and spectacular and beautiful and wonderful that he wants everyone to be in awe of his ability, right? And so I want us to pray that that would be the reality that in the end of this process, and this is just a step in the road anyways, right, that somehow God's glory will be made known. That's the prayer. I'm going to ask that we would pray together, and then we're going to jump into this morning's uh, time in the scriptures um, together. So pray with me over the property this time. Father God, I just thank you so much for your church gathered here this morning, and I thank you for brothers and sisters who aren't able to be with us today, that you be with them wherever they are. We thank you so much that we're able to celebrate so many good things that you're doing in our community. We give you praise and glory because you orchestrate things that none of us could have hoped for or imagined, and for your glory and the good of your people, those two things seem to work hand in hand. Your glory and the good of your people. And we thank you so much for the seasons of, of, um, of, of seeking and of, of not being sure, of wondering you know, what you're doing exactly, that, that in the end, and Father, that's really my prayer and the prayer of our church, is that at the end, that you be glorified as the all-sufficient provider that you are, that you be glorified as God, and that we can just you know, 
bask in your glory for who you are, that it would not be about us, but about you. And so, Father, may you be glorified. May your name be made famous among the nations. And uh, if we've been praying, Father, and it seems like, you know, we said, if this is not what you want, block it from us. And, and then there was some, you know, sense that maybe you did that. And now, Father, it seems that, no, you're moving us forward on this. So would you cause every step to be an act of faith, um, every moment to be a, a, a relinquishment of our authority or power to you, uh, that you would be known, and it would be your thing for your people in your time. Uh, may you be glorified. We thank you so much for the chance we get to worship you this morning and to be with you and to trust you with these great and awesome things. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue this morning in the book of Acts, and we're going to take a look at um, a couple of, a chapter and a half this morning, which is quite a bit to cover, but uh, we're going to connect some things together here that, um, that came together over the summer. You know, God is always at work all the time doing everything at once, which is amazing to me that that happens. And so I'm actually going to ask uh, Steve Hampsch to come up this morning. And I don't know if we have the handheld mic. Do we have the handheld mic in the back this morning? So Steve and I were at camp uh, this summer together, and he, he shared something that is on now um, that we want to talk about this morning a little bit together. And so I'm going to ask him to come up this morning and talk to us about a couple of, I would say, heroes of the faith, uh, encourage, encouraging people who are kind of laced in quietly in the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we see at the beginning of the church, you know, there are thousands of people converted. And, and now, uh, as uh, Pastor Bill has gone through Acts, we see just small groups of people, just individuals. Uh, Lydia, uh, the, the demon-possessed gal and the Roman uh, uh, jailer. Uh, mm. and, and so evangelism, as you shared with me one time, evangelism becomes difficult. It's a tough thing to do. And uh, I want to talk about a couple that's in the, in the New Testament, a couple, a good couple, um, and there's not many uh, examples of couples in the, in the New Testament. We, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, Peter, James, Timothy, and so on. This couple, uh, in chapter 18, if you'd open your scripture, I'd like to just make a couple comments about a couple who did good work. And when I first looked at it, I probably read over it a dozen times and said, who is Aquila and Priscilla? Hmm. It's a peculiar name. And uh, so I'll read the first verse here. It says, after this, Bill will probably say, after, after what? But uh, Paul left Athens and he went to Corneth. What kind of city is Corneth? Corinth was a pretty crazy place. That's why we have two letters written back to them by the Apostle Paul, and it seems like it was, uh, yeah. they had struggles. Pretty, pretty ris risque. Pretty, yeah. Therefore, he met a name, man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting. We hear Pontus, that community back in Acts Chapter 2, when Pentecost came and people speaking in tongues, and it's mentioned that they heard the gospel in Pontus. I don't know if Aquila and Priscilla heard that, but it's, it's, it's likely that they did. And they had to leave Rome. That was their home. Hmm. They had a business. They were tent makers or leather makers. It's not sure. They left Rome because Claudius was an emperor. Uh, and he was kind of a shady guy. He had a lot of debt. And it's perhaps uh, he didn't want any trouble. You see, a prophet came, 
in uh, chapter 11, I think Lance covered this a couple weeks ago, this prophet came and said, there's going to be a famine in Rome. Now that, that was probably not good news for him. He wanted no trouble, perhaps. I'm making an assumption there. Anyway, they had to leave Rome. They had to leave their business. They had to leave their home family and establish in Carnath and took up the tent making. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. About, let's talk about um, Aquila and Priscilla a little bit. So you talked about they were probably in Corinth whenever the Holy Spirit was poured out there. Yep. And um, and then what else we know about them in there? Are we studying from here? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it said um, Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker, as they were. He stayed and worked with them. They offered hospitality. They said, "You need a job. Come." I don't know if Paul had uh, resources or not, but they opened their home for him. And it says over in, um, in verse 11, so Paul stayed in Carnath a year and a half teaching the word of God. Mm-hmm. And it's Aquila and Priscilla probably allowed them to stay there, perhaps even financially allowed them. We see that they, he, uh, Paul was speaking in the synagogue often, so it's, uh, it's likely that they, they helped him. Mm-hmm. Verse 24, I'm hopping to. Bill will fill in the details in between here, but it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, he was a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Key verse. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. That's a hero. Right. It's not, it's not evangelist necessarily, but it's a, come on over to our home, we'll open it up, and we'll, we'll learn together. Hmm. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Over to, in Corinthians chapter 16, you can turn if you want, I'm at verse 19. It says, the churches in Providence in Asia send you greetings. This is Paul speaking. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their home. They're back in Rome. Yeah, back in Rome, and they have a, they have a home church. They have, yeah. literally have a gathering of believers in their house Absolutely. as a matter of hospitality, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. I'm back in uh, Acts, if you're following. I'm in verse 18. Mm-hmm. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and stayed, sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Mm-hmm. Once again, they, they not only they potentially supported him, but uh, they, trail, they went with him to Ephesus. And we have indications that they may have stayed there for a while. Mm. So they went from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus. And the final verse, I should be more nervous. You might be more <laughs> no, nervous than I am. I mean, he's going to preach the whole message for me. I'm just going to stand here and hold the mic. My new job. I love it. In Romans uh, chapter 16, we look at verse 3. Mm. And Paul says in the letter to the Romans, apparently they're back in Rome again, says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They have risked their lives for me. Mm-hmm. Not only I, but the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their home. Yeah. Those are heroes. 
Those are yeah. people, common people who are doing great things. Yeah. And then, and then we have, don't we have, and is it Second Timothy, I think, right, where there's a reference as well to, to, the, to those two. So, I mean, there's this kind of enduring, yeah. like, all these people we see Paul pick up and disciple on the way, but he's not doing this alone. And there's these people who kind of step up. Yeah. And, and Paul being the main focus, but there are people that, like you said, support him, care for him, maybe even financially, opening their home, yeah. giving him a job, supporting him to Ephesus as they travel. Yeah, and we talk about this kind of funny because we call like maybe Paul a hero of the faith, but he's not doing, he's, there's people who are kind of like pouring, and then Apollos, like we talk about, we'll talk about it again in a minute, but how we're investing in him as a couple, and some of the things that we often, well, this came up at camp because the question is, how do you live your faith practically? And you said at camp, that's one of the models we have of a couple who is being faithful with the ministry that God has given them to do, and often we can say like, what can we do, who are we? But here's a couple who just it seems, listened to the Lord, was obedient even to moving around, um, had a portable business, <laughs> it seems, tent making, ironically, um, and, uh, and then invested in these kingdom things, and they're just right under the surface of what's happening with the gospel all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, praise God. So, so that's a little bit, I, so why would, Steve said, let's, let's talk about that. And I said, yeah, that'd be awesome to do that. And check this out, because I want that idea um, this morning to be an underli- underlying uh, thread throughout this text, that there are, that that, that that kind of faithfulness in the church is an underlying, I don't know what you call it, like a background for what the Holy Spirit is doing, or, or even a foreground. I'm sure for um, Aquila and Priscilla, it didn't seem like background to them. They were on their own adventure with Jesus, and they weren't going, wow, look at Paul. I mean, I'm sure they were glad to hang out with him, right? But they were going, wow, look at what God is doing in our lives as we faithfully listen and serve him. And so I thought that's such an encouraging, encouraging thing. And I want that to be a kind of a, a foundation for the things we're going to talk about today, this continuous thread um, throughout, that God can use our circumstance. Often we think that, that uh, oh, you know, God will use me when. God will use me whenever things are right, or God will use me at this moment. But what we see in today's text is that over and over again, it's the combination of God's timing and of our circumstance and an outpouring of his grace and mercy or his Holy Spirit that manifests his glory amongst his people. That's a mouthful. But I'm saying these things come together in a beautiful way that only God can orchestrate. And so too often we sit back and we think, well, no, we're going to do it when we get over there. But God's doing it, trying to do it where we are right now, right here. And often I'm not sure we want to hear that. So that's kind of the thread we're going to kind of follow through this morning in the text. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to pray that God would inspire us to process what Steve already shared and the rest of the text we're going to get into by praying that God would give us his presence, be our teacher today. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the... Um, the exciting witness of a couple who was faithful to you, uh, who you had poured yourself into, and then they lived out of that abundance you had given them to be a blessing to other people. We thank you for faithful witness. We thank you for um, being able to see saints who go before us. And I say saints, not that they were holy, but that you were holy in them, and that, that they're saintly because your spirit lives in them, and your son has redeemed them. And we want to follow people like that in our lives, and we want to be people like that who are full of your Holy Spirit, and after you, um, always bending an ear and eye toward the gospel, always thinking a direction of kingdom principles that are bigger than this passing world, and 
be encouraged. So thank you so much for that this morning. Would you teach us from your word today? Would you inspire us by the same spirit that inspired the disciples to live the word, to capture the word, to pass on the word, and now that we could receive the word and live out of it ourselves and our lives in a very practical way. Help us to do that today. Only you can do it. We need you to teach us. And when we learn from you, no one else need instruct us, Father. So would you be our teacher this morning? We open ourselves to you and we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to kind of cruise through now. Steve did a great job of setting up um, Aquila and Priscilla and what we're going to talk about. We're going to start in verse 1 uh, of, Corinth, of, of Corinthians, I got Corinthians in my mind, of Acts in chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, where he met a Jew named Aquila, we covered this already, and a native of Pontus, and recently had come from Italy, who had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, um, because Claudius had ordered them and the Jews to leave Rome. Uh, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. And Steve made a point that maybe they gave him employment, and that's a fair enough thing, but at least he was a co-laborer in the same field. And you can imagine, we talk often about not wanting to be in competition, but there's a tendency to compete in business, but here they're laboring together. He had a skill set he could use, and they put him to work, or he worked with them in some way. Verse 4, every Sabbath then he would go to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jews, trying to persuade them and the Greeks. And persuade them to what? To believe in Jesus as Lord. To believe that he is the Messiah. This is Paul's lifelong bent in the gospel. Um, picking up now in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively then to preaching. And the, what we read that is that he stopped making tents for a while to preach the gospel. I don't know if you know any like bivocational pastors, what we call them, or people who maybe preach the word, but also have a full-time job. I can't tell you many times people have asked me that question in public. So what do you do for a living? And I go, well, I'm a pastor. And they go, that's all you do? Fair enough. You know what I mean? Because it's a privilege to preach and study the word of God as a calling and to be with people and pray with people as a calling. It seems such a funny thing because all of us can do it as followers of Jesus, right? There's an expectation. Well, there's more, right? You do more than that, right? Um, and that's what we see Paul demonstrating here, that there are seasons of life. Matter of fact, I think he says something like, I provided all that was needed for my ministry with my own hands. This idea that I worked hard for my ministry. I, it wasn't a passive receiving thing. Um, at the same he makes the case that we ought to um, bless those who are preaching the word. And that's not self, that's just the, what the scriptures say, right? And so we have this idea that Paul then took a season where he was devoting himself exclusively to preaching, to testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And that right there is the point of his ministry, right? The big conundrum, the big thing we still face today even, is that um, people want to believe in Jesus for a lot of stuff, but not being the one, the Christ, the solution, the way forward. And that's what Paul's making a case for all, not just Jews, but Greeks, that God is the, that God is, is the way forward for you in Jesus Christ. That's the way forward for you, and it's true for every person who's, you know, breathing uh, today. And so in verse 6 now, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook his clothes off in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibilities. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And this is a pattern we've seen before as well, where Paul's rejected with his initial um, message, and he says, you know what, that's enough then. If I'm done with this, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to say the same thing. The message won't change, but the people who hear it might change, right? Um, I want to kind of lay in, a little, uh, lay in a little thing here about what we do as a church, and, my, and part of my 
bentness, and I'm not saying this is right, this is how God has made me, probably because my background, but I am always eager to have people hanging out with us who have not heard the gospel before. And people go, well, they aren't the ones that tithe, and they aren't the ones that give, they aren't the ones that support the ministry, they aren't the ones that worship, and I, I understand that. You know Jesus Christ. You worship. You tithe. You support. You're on mission. I get it, and praise God for that. But our heart as people ought to be for those who haven't yet heard the gospel. You know what I mean? And there's this idea that those, there are those who are going to reject the gospel. And this, honestly, church, breaks my heart. And what Paul does here, I am stunned by, where he just kind of says, I'm moving on. Because I, that is so hard for me to imagine. I want to sit with one person and talk and pray and focus and love because I want to see the moment that God breaks through in their life in a beautiful way and I get to go, praise God, you're saved. But Paul has this urgency to his message and he says, I'm moving on. You've heard it. So many times these days we hear criticism of the church and we hear, you know, the church is this wrong, that wrong, and it's right. I mean, they're right. We do a bunch of stuff wrong, you know. But the reality is this. We have an urgent message that needs to be heard. And if you've already heard it and you aren't believing it, we can't spend all day arguing with you about that. And even worse than that is if you've heard it and you believe it, and then you think the job of the church is to make sure that you're satisfied with what's happening in church, like that's such a broken model. It's broken for me. Like it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be what I want. It should be what we can do to help proclaim the gospel to the nations. That's what missionaries are doing. That's what churches are doing. What we ought to be doing is preaching the word to people who have not yet heard the gospel. So check it out in verse 7. So then Paul left the synagogue and he went next door to the house of uh, um, Titius uh, Justus, a worshiper of God. That's right. He went where? Next door. <laughs> That's how far he went. He's like, you aren't listening to the synagogue? I'm going to go next door. And he goes next door to the... Um, to this guy's house, and Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who had heard him believed and were baptized. See, Paul just moves on to someone else, not because he doesn't love people, because he, he's like, this is an urgent thing. More people have to know, and we ought to have a, a heart like that, like Paul. Just, you know, all right, we'll go next door then. Talk about the gospel there. Ja and, uh, verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. Um, Steve alluded to the fact that Corinth is a, a, a crazy place to live, right? I mean, you talk about like a secular, it was a crossroads, it was this kind of place where there was sinful behavior. Again, that's why there was two letters written back to Corinth, to the church, because the church was doing crazy stuff in Corinth. Like they were so inculcated in the culture, like they were so soaking it up that they needed to be told, that's not how Christians behave. <laughs> this is how Christians behave. That's uh, First and Second Corinthians found in their Bible. This idea that, um, that the, the people there were being converted. But look at this, and this is our second point. The first was that God uses our circumstance. That's the underlying principle today, that God uses all of our circumstance for his glory. But then the second thing is um, that we can have a tendency to quit. We can have a tendency to quit. And that might surprise us. Let's see where we're at. Yeah, God uses our circumstance. Yeah, we might be tempted to quit. I put might in there, and I thought maybe we can be tempted to quit. And you would think that would be a crazy thing. I want to read just for a minute, think about why, why is God saying this to Paul? Of all people, I just told you how passionate he was to share the gospel. Do you think there was any part of Paul that goes, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. 
I can make tents for a living. I don't need this kind of trouble. Like, I know that's all not found in the scripture. What I'm saying there, I'm just saying, but what is causing the conversation that one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, in, in the night, a vision to Paul to say, don't be afraid. That is not what I would use to describe the Apostle Paul at all. Afraid of what? Like Paul has been beaten and thrown out and snuck away at night repeatedly. I mean, what is Paul going to be afraid of? What is he going to have to do to, you know, what, he ha- what, what, what more do you have to do to prove his courage in the gospel? But God knows our heart. And so God's saying to Paul, don't be afraid. What do he say next? Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I mean, can you imagine anyone silencing the apostle Paul? Maybe Paul could. Maybe. I mean, why has God given Paul this vision? Steve mentioned, he stands a long time in the city. A long time there. Where things are hard. Life is hard. Ministry is hard. Preaching the gospel is hard. Being ridiculed and set aside and made fun of. Even his own, like, people who would say, we're religious, but we think you're nuts. Like, no one's on side with Paul with the gospel. Except the Lord. What does he say? Verse 10. Why? Why not be afraid? Why keep on speaking? Why not? Why, why stop? Why not? Why should we not be silent? Because I am with you. That's what Jesus says. Paul, don't quit. I'm with you. I'm with you. Like, that's enough. I heard a story um, this week about uh, someone's uh, testimony was that um, God had walked in their life always holding their hand. I thought, what a powerful image that we ought to get in our own lives in every practical way. No matter what we're going through, what season of life, the ups, the downs, the goods, the bads, everything else, that God has a fatherly hand on us that is assuring us of our next step, that we can have confidence in that. Jesus says here, why should you not? Because I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you. He must have been afraid for his safety in the town. This is going to be super sketchy here. These people might kill me. Jesus says, no. Why? Because I have many people in the city. Now, I'm not going to hit that real hard. I've heard brothers and sisters preach, and they've said that very well, that God has many people in the city still. The, the one thing I'm amazed by is when the Christian community comes together you know, like we're going to do an event at the first football game on September 7th called the Point After event. That's the Ministry Alliance puts it on with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at the high school home football game. We have a big party afterwards, you know. And it's so awesome to me to see all the people of God who are claiming Christ for salvation coming together to proclaim one thing, which is that we love you, that God loves you, and there's a place for you. That's our united message in that, that we, we are here for you, that God is always there for you, and that we love you right? And so we try to do that through the point after event. This idea that um, there are many people in the city, many people, and that we can kind of take um, encouragement from that, that, that we're not the only person. As a matter of fact, if you think about it in the Old Testament, it's kind of funny because there's a, there's a great story about uh, Elisha, I believe it is. Elisha, Elijah, I always conflate those two. But he had done this great work, and he goes, and he's just convinced he's the last prophet. He's the last one. And God says to him, no, no, you're not the last one, you know, and, and gives them rest and restores them to, to ministry and to faithfulness. There's a tendency we can believe, I'm the only one who believes in Jesus in this way. I'm the only one who is living out the gospel of my life, and we might be tempted to quit. But check it out. God is with us. I'll tell you a little story. If you come to my house, and you're always welcome to come to my house, 
and you're washing your hands at my kitchen sink because we do that. We don't always wash our hands in the bathrooms. I mean, whatever, you know, it's convenient. It's right there in the first room of the house. There's a little sign that says, do not go weary in doing good because in due season, it will bear a harvest for those who do not quit. That's probably a misquote, but that's close to what it says. I can tell you this, uh, that, that was given to us in a very awesome season of ministry, and it was given to us by Sarah Walker. And she made those. I think she made them for women's ministry, I want to say. All I know is my bride put it right next to the kitchen sink. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that and been like, yes. <laughs> now, why do I say that? Because what an encouragement from someone to be obedient to the Lord and say, I'm going to make this thing, I'm going to give it away. And then it sets there as an enduring testimony. Don't quit. There's a tendency to quit. We ought not to quit. And so there's an encouragement that we should stay, stay the course. Look at what the next verse says. Lest we think Paul's not influenced in 11. So Paul stayed. That's why he stayed. Because Jesus said, don't quit, don't quit. And he doesn't. He stays for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. When, we're going to move on now. When Galileo, Galileo something like that, uh, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Now here it is. And they brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways that's contrary to the law. That he's persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to what the law has taught. Right? And this is the one time I think this happens in Scripture. It's in verse 14. It says, just as Paul is about to speak. I mean, you can almost sense that Paul loves these moments, right? Take me to court again. Tell me I'm doing it wrong again. And I will testify to the nations. I will tell the judge that he's under judgment. I will proclaim the truth to everyone. But it says, just as Paul was about to speak, um, Galileo, Galileo, I don't know why it's hard for me to say, says to the Jews, if you Jews are making complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for you to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own laws, settle the matter for yourselves. I will not be judged of such things. He recuses himself. He goes, I have no authority over these religious matters. Well, why am I going to bother with this, right? And so Paul doesn't get to defend himself, doesn't have to defend himself, and he's defended by the judge who says, why are we even here? Now look at verse 16. This is kind of one of those funny little footnotes, like an asterisk. So he had them ejected from the court. And then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and they beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. I just think that's just a funny little footnote that I just think, I don't know why, I think that's humorous to me. But they come in and they're like, would you decide this for us? Which all the way, by the way, is something that Paul says that the believers ought not to do. And I'm not going to get off that rabbit trail, but we ought not to seek the world for justice. Like, that's a broken model, you know? And so they're, they're like, hey, will you handle this for us? And, you know, they're kind of like groveling at the, you know, feet of man over this biblical, this doctrinal issue, this religious issue. And he says no. They go outside, and then they beat the synagogue ruler in the seeing. And this guy is indifferent. I mean, he doesn't even care about the religion that they're practicing. He doesn't care about the people. Like, he is indifferent toward these things. The very people who are just saying, please, please, look at this and decide for us, he could have cared less about them. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Now, I love that little word, some time. And then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So there they are, going with him. Before they sailed, he went, he had his hair cut off at 
Centria because of a vow he had taken. And Paul, this is interesting about Paul, but he's always doing these things. There's this real interactive, not one-size-fits-all faith life, right? And so here he takes a vow and he cuts off all of his hair. I'm not sure what that vow is. I know there's Nazarene vows that are related to growing your hair and not cutting it. That was Samson's deal, right? So something that Paul had taken a vow on, shaved his head as he traveled. They arrived then at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went to the synagogue of and reason with the Jews. So that's the pattern in 20. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So Paul's just cruising around, you know, checking on the churches. Remember, that was the plan. He's going to do that. Check on the churches. How you guys doing? What's happening in the life of the church? And strengthening the brothers and sisters in the faith. And that's what he's doing. And uh, there's a little thing in there that says they ask him to stay longer, but he declined. So it's like, it's not always yes with Paul. Sometimes no. I'm going to move on right now, but hopefully if God wills it, I'll come back and spend time with you. Verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and he traveled from that place to the place through throughout the region of Galatia and Phygeria, uh, strengthening all the disciples. So he's on his mission, just traveling around, encouraging the believers, you know, teaching the faith and, and um, being blessed in that way. Now, 24 is funny. Meanwhile, see, meanwhile, it's like while all this is happening in Paul's life, meanwhile, there's this other story happening over here. There's this guy named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. We read this today already, um, who came to Ephesus. So Apollos comes then to Ephesus, and he's from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is interesting because that would be the capital of Egypt. It was a very um, honorable place to be educated. There was a great Jewish population there, and it was really like, it was like coming, it was like going to an Ivy League school you know? No, no, no. It was like living in a town that was like an Ivy League town. You know what I mean? Like everyone who was someone came from Alexandria. So that's the first thing we hear about um, this Apollos fellow is that he is from Alexandria, a native. He, he was born there, raised there. He came to Ephesus. But look at what else it says. He was a learned man. So he was well-educated, Apollos. This is exciting stuff. With a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. So not only was he educated in like the ways of the world and the worldly kind of, you know, wisdom, but he was also very acquainted with scripture. He, he knew what the Bible said. He, he knew what it meant. He had studied uh, the scriptures well. Let's see. And he had been instructed in verse 25, in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with great fervor or great passion. He had a great oratory gift. You know, we're going to talk about why this is a big deal. But he had a great oratory gift that he was able to use. And then look at this. He taught about Jesus accurately. So he was being very accurate about Jesus, right? About what's going on with Jesus, which is interesting. Although he only knew the baptism of John. Now that little sentence is going to open up this new idea that we're going to kind of get through today as well um, as we study the book of Acts. But he only knew the baptism of John to remind you John said, make straight the way of the Lord, that there's one coming who is worthy, and you've got to be prepared for him. And it was a baptism of repentance. Does that make sense? A baptism of repentance. So I'm going to stop doing bad stuff because God's coming. Right? That's kind of what it's like. Dad's coming home. Everybody act like you're doing the right thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Forsake your old wicked ways. Pretend that you've been good this whole time that dad was gone. That's what's happening here with the baptism of John. Make straight the way of the Lord. He is coming right? But he knew only the baptism of John. So he'd been baptized as a, as a uh, disciple of John, this repentance. He was, 
he was, uh, what do you say, holy. He was self-regulated. He was controlled. He was learned. He was of esteem, this guy Apollos. Okay? He began to speak boldly in the synagogues. Now Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and they invited him to their home. When Steve talked about this, and they explained to him the way of the God more adequately. That's a funny little verse, but check it out. Some things that we see about people who are faithful disciples is they are listening well. And you remember the Bereans would go and examine everything. So that seems like the kind of people that um, Aquila and Priscilla were. They see this guy, Apollo, show up. By the way, remind, I want to remind you that Paul has left and left them there, right, in Ephesus. And so they're kind of behind doing what they always do, probably still making tents and being faithful in that way. But then this guy comes and starts teaching this. And I'm like, who's this guy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where did you come from, Apollos? Even the name, by the way, Apollos, right? Like, what a dominating name to have, you know? I am Apollos. You know, it just sounds cool. Well, he shows up, but instead of being intimidated, or instead of shying away from the gospel opportunity, instead of, like, being, oh, Apollos, how can we live up to you because you're from Alexandria and you're so wise and smart, they say, you want to have lunch? You know a lot of stuff. You want to have lunch? And there's this great moment here in Scripture, and the principle I'm going to say is this, that we ought to learn from each other. We ought to learn from each other. Because I'm not going to pick on Apollos here. I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap, but um, he goes. And what the word says so quietly is, he invited, they invited him into their home, and they, quote, explained to him the way of God more adequately. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like grace, doesn't it? Do you think they called him in their home and was like, your, your, your message today was off the mark? You know, you think they were like, you know, Apollos, you know, we're, if you don't straighten us out, we're going to leave the synagogue <laughs> or whatever, you know? No, they just like, hey, you want to come to lunch? Can we talk to you about the Jesus that we know? Can we tell you his way more fully? I mean, he only knew the baptism of John, right? That's a, a big tell. He, he, he knew a lot about God. Now listen, but he didn't know God. He knew a lot about God, but he didn't know God. Aquila and Priscilla knew God. They might not have known as much about God. They probably didn't know as much about scriptures, but they knew God. And in this graceful interaction, which I can't help but think is a graceful interaction, I'm not trying to like be, you know, super gooey about that, but they invite him in, they sit down, they probably eat a meal together, and they say, let's talk about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus, the one who is the way. And Apollos, to his credit, someone, we had this conversation recently, um, this idea of needing a teachable spirit. There's a Christian marker that you're always willing to learn that you don't know everything, you'll admit it. I don't know everything. And you'll sit with someone and you'll go, now that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it before. Especially when considering studying the scriptures together. If we have a doctrinal disagreement, my favorite thing is someone say, what about this verse? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's a great point. That verse is interesting. I hadn't read that like that before. Let's think about what that means. This idea that we are teachable. There's a, the language you don't find in the scripture that I can find, having a teachable spirit. But what I see here in Apollos is he does. Right? He goes to their house and he, he listens and he learns from them. Because it does say that they explained to him the way of God more adequately, which means that his understanding of the way of God was inadequate until that point. Like you can't say more adequately unless it was less adequate before. 
And so they taught Paul something, but he learned it. He was willing to receive it. And then look at verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go to Archaea, the brothers encouraged him then to go, and they wrote to disciples there to welcome him. That was always a big deal. You know, this guy's with us. He's on our side. And on arriving, he was a great help to those who, by grace, had believed. Why? 28. Because he had vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from Scripture, that Jesus is the Christ. I'm sorry, I get excited about that stuff. But listen, church, <laughs> that's what was missing before. Like, he knew of God, but he didn't know God. And that little verse, to explain it more adequately, all of a sudden un opens up this real ministry. You know, pa Apollos, I would say, could have spent his whole life proclaiming the truth of Jesus without knowing Jesus. He could have used his PhD on the wall. He could have said, look who I am. I'm very learned. I'm very holy. I do all the right things. I keep all the right rituals. But had no life in his ministry. But here it says, after that he is blessed by the church and he vigorously, he still does those things, by the way, 28. He still refutes them. He's still very smart, but he uses it to prove from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. He is on mission with the gospel. And that happens because of the grace of, of Aquila and Priscilla and their faithfulness to the Lord. Now, here's the question. And I did say, by the way, that, that the things that they did, they heard him, they invited him, and they explained to him. They heard Apollos. They were listening. They weren't just shutting him down. They invited him, and they explained these things that they were thinking he didn't know, quite understand. Here's the question, though. Who do you need to teach in your life? And you might say, man, I don't know enough to teach somebody. But you know something. You know something. Here, that's why I said, well, all I know is, that's all we're responsible for. I don't understand the fathoms of all the mysteries of God. I don't understand everything about who God is, but all I know is that God loves you, that he hasn't abandoned you. All I know is that he can be trusted. All I know is his promises are true. All I know is that he is on our side, and there is an enemy, but it's not God. And if God's your enemy, you've got the wrong enemy. See, that's all we're responsible for is all we know. Who can you teach? Who can you give a little bit of hope to? Well, Bill, you don't understand. I don't have a whole lot of hope myself. I get it, but a little bit? A little bit? Okay, maybe that is you. Who can you learn from? Who can you set at the feet of and go, I just need to understand. How do you live your life like that? You know, an Aquila and a Priscilla. Who... How do, you, how do you deal with this problem? And are you willing to be taught? See, there's this great sin found in the Bible. It's called self-sufficiency. And if you think about it, that's been the sin from the get-go. I don't need God or anyone else. I'm, 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 all, I'm alone. I, I got this all figured out. But that's not what the scriptures say. It says, no, you have to be willing to set us on the feet and say, how do I do this? I'm wrong out. I'm more out. I need to learn. Show me. And here's the funny thing. You have to do both at the same time. So even though you're learning, you have to be willing to teach. I mean, you have to be, and even though you're teaching, you have to be willing to learn. That's actually a phrase we like to use at Family Bible Church called learners who teach and teachers who learn. That sounds, but it's, I think, a God-given thing. That we be both at the same time. Disciples learning and teaching about Christ together. So we have an opportunity to do so. 
Um, and we see it manifest there. Verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. We're going to do about half 19. We'll be done today. Um, While Apollos was in at Corinth, now Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, by the way, before I move off on Apollos real quick, I want to say, you've heard the letter that Paul wrote about to the church in Corinth. The big division was over who was greater between Paul and Apollos. You know what Paul said about that? That's stupid. Check that out. All right. A better orator, but uh, maybe not a better gospel communicator. You know what I'm saying? And, but Paul says, even if you're on the side of him saying, oh, I'm the, you're the best preacher, he goes, still, who cares? Because it's not even the point, right? doesn't even matter. So I just want to mention that as we, as we kind of cruise through. All right. So while Paulus was in Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Now we're going to get into a whole issue over the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus. Just a heads up here, right? So look at it. They answered, no, we have not even heard there, there is a Holy Spirit. Listen to the word again. The Apostle Paul asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed. And they answered, no, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. These are 12 dudes, we found out later, who are hanging out there and uh, who had not heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And then Paul asked this question, so what baptism did you receive? And they answered this way, John's baptism. Remember, the baptism for repentance. I'm going to stop sinning, right? That was their, that was their baptism they received. And then Paul says this, verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, that is, believe in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. So I, I honestly think when the previous conversation happened with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, I honestly think that, that back then, thank you Eli, I appreciate it brother. Thanks so much. I believe that's what was happening. I believe that, that, that in coming to know the way of Jesus more adequately, that that same manifestation was had. It was a gospel understanding that Jesus is the Messiah and not just a, you know, uh, someone to be taught about. And uh, I think that's what happened. So that's what we have, right? So, why do I want to say this? Because here's my point. Uh, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to dig into this a little bit, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here, but I do want to say that this is a fundamental understanding of the faith in Jesus Christ that we ought to get through our heads because it's replete in Scripture. It's over and over again in Scripture. When Paul asks the question, he's asking because he expects an answer about it. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And, th and, that, and that means a couple of things. And I just want to kind of lay them out for you real quickly here because this is a big doctrinal issue. And this is something that we get in disagreements with people about, right? But Paul's asking the question because he expects that you could have received the Holy Spirit when you believed. When he meets these disciples, he asks them that question. He believes that you, you could have experienced it, but he also believes that you might not have experienced it, right? And so, in other words, it's possible you didn't. If Paul has an understanding that for sure these guys have the Holy Spirit, then he don't have to ask him the question. But if he's not sure, he needs to ask, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, right? But there's another thing. Whenever the answer no, we didn't know the Holy Spirit at all, 
he begins to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He begins to say that, well, John's repent, baptism for repentance. You're going to stop saying because God's coming. But here's the thing. In Jesus, God came. He's here. He's real. And right now, and then it doesn't say he says be baptized, but they are then baptized in Jesus' name, right? That's what happens. And upon being baptized in Jesus' name, the Holy Spirit falls on them or comes upon them, and then um, they are speaking in tongues and prophesying. Oh my gosh, what a mess. How, okay, check it out. So, it's for Paul, normative Christian experience. A normative Christian experience. That on believing in Jesus Christ, you will have been given the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? He doesn't believe there are people who, who believe in Jesus Christ but haven't been given the Holy Spirit. He's, he thinks you, you should, and not only should it have happened, but you should have known that it happened. You should have known it happened. I want to kind of take a little side note because I could spend a whole sermon on this, and maybe we should at some point in time. But I want us to understand this idea that um, uh, what's being unpacked here a little bit. And so I, have this, uh, I had this thing I looked up from John Piper on this issue, right? It's from the book of Acts. I'm not going to be able to reference all the scriptures that are in here, but you can look it up. And if you want the article, ask me, and I'll give you the link. You can read through it. It's actually one of his sermons that he preached. Um, but I think it was really interesting because he says, there are seven words and phrases that Luke uses. And remember, Luke wrote Luke and Acts describing the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and here's the seven. First, this Holy Spirit being given as a gift to people, Right? You don't deserve it. It's just given to you. The second is that the Holy Spirit falls upon people just like us at Pentecost. That's always reference. It fell on them like it fell on us. You know, that's the kind of idea that you were, you were you know, completely um, taken down. I have a, a friend of mine who was, who was literally, um, his experience was he was knocked down by the Holy Spirit the first time uh, he experienced that. Uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon people, which is what we hear in this text, actually, coming upon people. Um, the Holy Spirit being poured out upon people. And if you can imagine, just being covered in the Holy Spirit, like, like a, a, I don't know what it is, like a slow, like a, I don't know what it is, a syrup or a, you know, just being poured out that you experience that reality. Um, people receiving the Holy Spirit, again, just like us at Pentecost, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's what the biblical testimony is. Um, people being baptized in the Holy Spirit just as we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? And being fully immersed just like the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of being immersed. And then lastly, being filled. This idea, kind of you think about being um, poured has this idea for being over us, but then being filled has this idea of being poured into us. That there's this experiential thing that the Holy Spirit does that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? It's not yourself anymore. You don't claim that it is, but it's the Lord working in us. Uh, experience the Holy Spirit. And then this is, then there's other things. There are six times that the Holy Spirit is, is found in stories and instances in the book of Acts. And it's first at Pentecost when they're speaking in tongues and there is praising of mighty works of God and of power to witness, right? So that's an experience of the effects of the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They were uh, um, praising the mighty works of God and they were powerful uh, witnesses for the gospel. In Samaria, there was something um, so obvious that Simon, remember, the sorcerer, saw it and he wanted to buy it. So it was external right? Uh, a stranger could see that they were filled with something that he wanted, and that the Holy Spirit was manifesting in an external way in the in Samarit, Samarit, Samaritan people. Um, at Caesarea, at the house of uh, Cornelius, there was a pouring out, so much so that the apostle Peter saw it and said, this is just like that. <laughs> How, who am I to stop this? This is God. Like, I know what this is. I've seen this before. And he, um, he, he affirmed that with, uh, 
with Cornelius' household. In Ephesus, with the disciples of John the Baptist, there was a speaking in tongues and prophesying. That's what we're talking about right now, today. Um, at Paul's conversion, there was an extraordinary boldness and an empowering to witness, right? The manifestation of Acts 1 and 8, that you'll be witnesses, um, you'll receive power to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And then that's the last one, that we are witnesses, all of us, the Holy Spirit are witnesses, and that God has given uh, to obey him. And so this is a really funny thing, but um, there's an obedience co component that being obedient to God is a testimony, an experience of the Holy Spirit, because we cannot obey him of our own ability, our own flesh, right? And so there are some ideas of, of how the Holy Spirit is received, but why make uh, such a big deal about it? Well, a couple things. They were lacking something in their faith without the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the way I've seen this manifest is it's like an incomplete gospel. It's kind of like we saw earlier with Apollos. I know about God. I don't know God. I've heard people say what they experienced with God. I've not experienced God. I, I, I know that my, you know, whoever it is um, knew this experience, but I didn't know that experience. And so this is why it's a big deal. It's like... Um, going part the way there, specifically with the baptism of repentance. I'll tell you what the baptism of repentance reminds me of. It reminds me of the, the Saturday night regret prayer. And I'm not going to get really graphic here, but it's that moment where you screwed up your life so bad, and you're like, God, I'm so sorry. I'm going to do better. That's the prayer of repentance. I, I'm, I'm sorry I messed this up. I'm going to do better. I'm gonna, but that's not the prayer of Jesus. Because the, the prayer of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus is not that I'm going to do better from now on. It's that you have made me clean. That you, by your grace and your blood, have sanctified me. That you have washed me and that you are filling me. And it's not the same thing as going, God, I'm going to try so hard now. I'm going to be so good now. That's not what it is. It's like, you have done so much. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to receive that from you. And that's the baptism in Jesus' name. I told you I was going to pray this year. Someone said, do you the pastor? I said, yeah, I'm the pastor. Do you baptize in Jesus' name? I said, we do. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they go, well, we baptize in Jesus' name. I'm like, didn't I just say the same thing? Is that not the same thing? And we can talk about that, but I believe it is because our baptism, and I want to say this, is a, a, a belief in Jesus' ability that he's already cleansed us in the cross, that we are wholly sanctified. Matter of fact, and this is crazy, church, but that Jesus paid the price not just for the sins that we did before we repented of sin, but the sins that we're still yet to do that we don't even want to do. That we are, that we are, we are going to fall into you. And I'm not saying we should. We should not. But when we do, that sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a bigger thing than I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. And I'll tell you this. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. We get hung up on forms here, modes. Do you say these words in the baptismal font? Do you do it this way? Listen, God knows the heart of what's happening, and we ask people, and I'm just trying to maybe defend a little bit how we, but we ask people, are you confessing that you have no hope apart from Jesus Christ, and you're counting on him for salvation? Yes. And do you plan to follow him the rest of your days with his help? Because you will not follow him without his help. But with his help, you can follow him the rest of your life. You can run the race faithfully. Yes. Then it's our honor to baptize you. Yes. 
and you have the Holy Spirit in your life. This is a huge deal because all of a sudden life becomes very practical for us that we can live with Jesus and it's not this externalized religion but it's internalized faith. That's the difference. Okay, I'm preaching. But check it out. This is uh, Romans and this is why it should trouble us if we don't experience when Paul said, do you know the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. It says, you however are controlled not by the sinful nature right into the church but you are controlled by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. That's your hope to live faithfully is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then look at the next verse. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So this idea that if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you don't belong to the Anointed One. You can know a lot about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. And this is what Jesus himself said. I will go ahead of you, and I'm going to send the counselor back to you that you might know all the things that, um, that my Father wants, that we want to reveal to you. That's a paraphrase. But it's pretty right on, right? Like, that's the hope, is that Jesus would send him, the Spirit, to us. All right. Um, let's see where we're at here. Yeah. Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. There they are again. And they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. And when they, uh, this went on for two years now. So this is where these time clips are happening, right? 18 months here a short time after that, two years here, like there's all this kind of little words worked in that tell you how long and faithful the ministry was in that area. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Footnote, remember Asia was closed? Now Asia is open. And they've all, all heard the word of the Lord. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and the illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And you may have seen stuff like that being manifested in ministries now. I am skeptical, but I'm telling you that, that there's a biblical witness that these things happened. That there was this reality of the power of God working that was so powerful that that was manifest in that way. I'm just going to leave it at that. We can talk about that if you want to more. Verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, check that out, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So they're trying to do the same thing. They're Jewish people, and they're trying to invoke Jesus' name over demons. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Skevia, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped upon them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The synopsis there is, these seven dudes who were proclaiming that they could have power to witness were beaten up by one guy to the point that they were left naked, bleeding, and running down the streets. And here's what I want to say, is our faith must be known. Our faith must be known. You might read that as far as like, well, I have to go preach my faith. No, but it has to be your faith. It has to be your faith. You, this is where we get hung up on like, you know, heritage and stuff. Well, my grandma believed. My grandpa believed. My other my uncles believed. My mom and dad believed. You know, my kids believe. Whatever. No. It has to be your faith that is proclaimed. And, and we see this. Who are you? There's a reality that if we are in faith in Jesus Christ that we are known by the enemy. And they would know that. This one is mine. And, and they're like, and you can see even in this, they, they, they kind of knew they were doing that. 
All right, we're going to close here. 17. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, check this out, man. All were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Again, putting Jesus, magnifying Jesus, putting him up where he belongs to be glorified because it's only Jesus that's doing these things and not man, and it's not about that. Verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. So you have this repentance behavior. See in 18? They came and they openly confessed. They agreed with God. What they were doing was evil. A number, a number who practiced sorcery brought the scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this, in, the, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And I just want to say this last point here. is transformation has a price. That these people who were believing the gospel, it cost them greatly to believe the gospel because out of conviction and the reality of their confessed sin, they came together and they burned their scrolls. We talked about this before, right? But that was millions of dollars worth of scrolls they burned up. It was a livelihood. It was an, art, it was an artifact. But it was no longer useful in life. And I just want to say this to you. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to find things in your past that are no longer useful in your life. They don't be fitting a Christian life. And it's not about being, you know, sanctifying ourselves, but there will be times that God will say, let that go. Let it go. We're not living that place anymore. And it's going to cost us greatly. And they did it. And listen, I don't think they did it begrudgingly, like, oh, here's my scrolls. It says they really came together and they burned them in a big spectacle, right? And they did it publicly. I'm done with this. It cost them greatly. But it was a great witness. And what has it? The way of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. That this faithful response to the gospel. I feel compelled to say one more thing on that. Listen, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but there will be things that you need to leave behind when you start following Jesus that are not helpful in your life. But there will be things that God will ask you to stop. I recently heard a brother talking about this, and it wasn't even a bad thing. But God says, stop that. It wasn't even a sinful thing. God said, stop that. And obedience, he stopped that because he thought God was saying, stop it. And he quit doing this little side thing that was meaningless, really, but it was, it was you know, innocuous. And he believes that because he stopped that, God opened up this whole huge avenue of ministry. Why? Obedience. Are you listening? What's it say? The way of the Lord spread. The way of the commander, the way of our, our senior, our, our boss, our father, grew in power. After this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Archaea. And after I have been there, he said, I must also visit Rome. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Mas uh, Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. And there's Paul hanging out, man, just, just enjoying that. It's a lot of stuff. I want us to understand that the church is in us. Like, the gospel is in us. We are very practical ways, containers of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God is in you and I. I don't know if today there's been something that's been woke in you. You're like, man, I, I, I got to pay attention to this. Or there's a sin you need to repent of. Stop, I'm going to stop doing that. Or there's something God's calling you to go and do. There's something in your life that you need more obedience in. But I just want to pray for that, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and be obedient to his call, whatever it is, in every manifestation for his glory through his body. And know that this idea that he literally, on purpose, put all the hope of the gospel in us and these little people running around saying, I know, I don't know everything, but I know Jesus. I don't know everything, 
But I know God's bigger than your circumstance today. I hope that we're that kind of witness in the community. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for the good testimony of your word and for the opportunity we have to um, experience it, to receive it, and to know you more intimately. I pray, Father God, that we would all be willing to be taught, that we would be willing to learn uh, from you and from others who've gone or who are going with us right now. And Father, um, maybe most especially when we think that no one has something to teach us, that we learn from those folks, that, that we have something that, that they have something we need to learn and uh, to be changed by. Um, your Holy Spirit is our teacher and, our, and the author and the finisher of our faith, and, and we just believe um, that uh, you are doing great things in our lives, so would you lead us forward in faith? May we have a faith that's living and active, a known faith, not an unknown, a proclamation that is ours. I pray for the church today, Father God, that you give us great witness this week that's our witness in the community that's made known through us by your power that you be glorified that sinners might come to repentance and forgiveness of sins. You're, you're awesome. We love you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.